why don't we learn about Teresa Halbach? The only thing we seem to learn about her is that, well, she obviously shouldn't have gone to Stephen Avery's house by herself in that car to show him the car. That means if a woman, you shouldn't do X. And right. Very How dare a woman think she has a right to exist in the world without being murdered. Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's how I think about women as well. That's why um, I don't leave the house. Cause I don't expect to not get murdered out there. That's why I'm not a woman. Yeah. I just decided Dude, to not good be call. One. <laughs> good call. Man. You should think about it. I uh, should I should consider this. Welcome back to Random Fandom. I'm Britt Kelly. I'm Stephanie Weaver. Britt, how, what are you feeling like today? What am Who I feeling like today? today? Well, I have teal hair and a green shirt. And actually, my shorts that I'm wearing at the moment are turquoise. So I'm feeling like some kind of sea creature. I have a lot of turquoise on my arm tattoos as well. So yeah, I'm a sea creature this week. I think actually every time I see a seal or a sea lion or a manatee, I get really jealous because I feel like they're really living the life just swimming Man- around in the water and then they'll, they'll hang out in the are sun so cool they are so cool just out there doing their own thing being yeah. super nice yeah so that's I, i'm a manatee today actually yeah i think that's great <laughs> what are you um, this week Stephanie? what am i today so i i dyed my hair back brown this week it was blue and i think i'm I went, I actually went out yesterday on like a physical activity outside. And so I, I think I'm feeling kind of maybe a bit tree-like today. Oh, I love like, that. Just kind of like stretching up towards the sun a little bit. Yeah. You know, but rooted just, still. Yeah. Figuring I out that. like what I need from the world right now to like suck up into my roots to, to sprout out some big, beautiful leaves. that's perfect so we can talk about whether true crime which is the (laughs) focus of this week's episode we can talk about whether that is a nutritious diet or not yeah so uh, this week as I said we're talking about true crime which is a really broad label but we're using it as a way to talk about our, our I think our developing question now what is it to be a fan what is fandom which I think is kind of a nice question to consider so yeah, Stephanie, do you have a tagline for this week? Random fandom, the show where even death is super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually really apropos because <laughs> while true crime encompasses a large range of things, I think I definitely tend to consume and I do feel like the largest market of true crime is about murder even though that is not the most common crime of crime, as far as I understand yeah. it. Um, that's great. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the idea of like the most common crime of crime, the most common crime of crime. It's a crime's crime. Uh, uh, I don't know what that means. All right. Probably theft is the most common crime or something. All right. So Stephanie, what is your relationship to true crime? I don't. I'm actually going to say I don't know that I have much of one, I guess. I've listened to like a couple of episodes of My Favorite Murder, Mm -hmm. 
but I don't really get into like true crime labeled stuff very much. Okay. Um, I, I'm more likely to get interested in historical crime, I guess. Okay. Which seems to be somehow di- like, it seems to be different from like the true crime genre. So like more history stuff is more my wheelhouse. So this, a lot of this today is going to be pretty new to me actually. Okay. So, like, when you mean, like, are, do you have any interest in, like, Jack the Ripper? I feel like <laughs> he's Oh, been... uh, well, yeah. So, like, uh, but most of my interest in Jack the Ripper is because he was a contemporary of, like, Sherlock Holmes. So there's, like, well, maybe we'll have to do a Sherlock Holmes episode sometimes. <laughs> because there's yeah. all kinds of, like, fanfic out there, both, like, authorized and unauthorized about Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper so yeah I guess like most of my interest in crime is actually tangentially related to interests in other fandom stuff where I like gotcha. get into the crime because I'm interested in other stuff yeah that's actually really interesting too I, I think especially if we think about Sherlock Holmes as a figure because that's sort of the first figure who sets up this interesting dynamic that we is very prevalent particularly in all of our true crime media that relates to serial killers or not even true crime, just our media that relates to serial killers, I I would say, because it establishes this, the only person who can solve these crimes is this incredibly intelligent dude, this like genius dude. And the only reason he can do that is because all of the serial killers are also geniuses, which is bizarre. Um, But I think that is a common thread particularly with serial killers that they're always playing this cat and mouse game with the police and that the police would be able to solve these crimes if the serial killer weren't such an amazing genius and when you look at actual serial killers that's just not the case mm-hmm. like so if we think about Jeffrey Dahmer for example or um, I like to refer to serial killers by like nicknames because I think it takes away some of their power so if we look at Jeff Right. Jeff was just a mess. Jeffy boy. Yeah. Jeff like couldn't really hold down a job. He was a raging alcoholic. He almost got caught once. And the only reason the police didn't realize he was a crazy serial killer was because they didn't like people of color and poor people of color. That was it. Right. They were just like, we don't like gay people. and We don't like people of color. This seems fine. So it's like, no, he wasn't particularly intelligent at all. Teddy, our good old Teddy Bundy, he wasn't either right it's it's a very much like incompetence is the reality yeah. rather than and not you know people getting caught much later because people don't care about certain issues in the same way so yeah i i, I like that but okay so for you true crime is not a key area i think for me true crime has been a part of my media consumption to one degree or another for a very long time part of this is because my mother is very paranoid and afraid of crime and (laughs) yeah so she like she grew up in the country so for her it's weird she has kind of the she grew up with the opposite fears that I did so like for her she's like oh my god the city is really dangerous people want to steal from you and hurt you and kill you so you really have to be on the lookout she has notifications on her phone to let her know, like, if there's SWAT situations in Albuquerque, like, she wants to know if there's missing children. She wants to know all of that. Like, what's the crime that's going on? Yeah. She buys stuff where, you know, you can rig up a little alarm on your hotel room door so that if someone's trying to, you know, get into your hotel room, it might scare them away, or at least you have a warning so you can 
get in touch with the police or something. Yeah. So I grew up in this environment of being a little bit paranoid about other people and other people are just wanting to hurt you and being aware of the crime that happens can potentially help you to prepare to avoid and or fight back against crime. That was sort of that. I think in addition, we both grew up in the stranger danger era where yep, yep. suddenly it was just it wasn't as bad for us as for my sister, for example, who's 18 years younger than me. But this idea that like you can never speak to a stranger because the, the stranger in the big coat and the weird van offering you candy or puppies is definitely going to take you and mm-hmm. um, have sex with you and murder you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, especially as like femme presenting people, there's the yeah. like always the heightened threat of danger when you're yeah that too exactly all the things like hold keys between your your knuckles when you're walking home Mm -hmm. and you know get on the phone and pretend you're on the phone with someone or something so that people won't attack you which yeah I mean I think a lot of this I've grown up with a lot of paranoia and certainly living in the society that we live in has only bolstered that for sure I would say my real interest as a kid was not really true crime, but like emergency shows. So rescue oh, yeah. 911 yeah. was, I was obsessed with that show. So into it. I, I was interested in, I think first responders and like, how do people respond to scary situations that they're in? And that really captured my imagination. Obviously America's most wanted and unsolved mysteries were big hits on TV when we were mm-hmm. kids. So I was yep. into those. But I think I was less into those as a kid than I am now. Well, not so much America's Most Wanted, but uh, those kinds of things. So there's a degree to which I watched that stuff, but I wasn't really into true crime, true crime, I want to say, until probably around 2014, which is when I started listening to Serial. So this is a huge podcast. I think by now pretty much everybody is aware of it. It did get, I think actually I started listening to it in 2016. I, I lied about that. So it came out in 2014. And by the time I listened to it two years later, everybody was talking about it. It was this huge thing. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Serial is a podcast that was hosted by and is kind of related to This American Life, which is an NPR show that's been on for a really long time. The host, Sarah Koenig, is a journalist who's worked in different places. And the show is a multi-part show that was put together by her after having done several interviews with um, Adnan Sayed, who is the main topic of the show, his family members, police, etc. She looked through a ton of the legal documents related to his case. And she put together this sort of beautifully produced show that focuses on whether or not Adnan Syed is guilty of the crime. So in the show, it focuses on this crime that happened in 1999, where an American high school student and Korean American Min Lee goes missing. I think a few days or weeks later, her body is found in Leakin Park in Baltimore, And a few days after that, her ex-boyfriend, Anand Syed, is arrested for her murder. And eventually he is, he receives a sentence of life in prison for that murder. The show basically goes through, did, could he possibly have committed this murder? And the, the first season in particular focuses a lot on one of his friends, Jay, and the fact that 
basically given the timeline that the police and the and the prosecutors were working with, there's 21 minutes that he would have needed to commit this murder within, and they just don't think it's doable given what the timeline is that is established by police. Since then, now recently, uh, Anansiad has actually been released. I don't know what the case looks like now, but this show was huge. I mean, it it's it it's a, it was massively popular. It was listened to by a lot of people. It definitely grabbed me. It's something that's really easy to binge. And I think part of that is probably because its focus is on how someone can get trapped in the American justice system so easily. And that um, it gives you this sense that anybody could be not just accused of a massive crime, but convicted of that crime and given a life sentence, whether they, they committed that crime or not. Shows like this is why I was paranoid about doing a, a fingerprint check for my job when I started a new job. Oh, really? Months ago. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm connected with any crimes, but I guess we'll find out. Right. Yeah. So have you heard of Serial before? I'm sure you have. Yeah. I I remember when Serial was big. I I didn't get into it. The, the next one that NPR did about the guy who might have had the gold i think it um, was that shit s-town shit yes S-town. yeah 2017 I, I listened <laughs> yeah i listened to that one and after that one if i had felt differently about the ending of that one i was primed to start serial but i had very complicated feelings about the end of that and was like all right i think i'm done with this style of media for now yeah i think but... s-town was harder because it does end on basically this man's last phone call and then he he dies by suicide and and the journalist who decided to go ahead and move forward with that it's, it's not like the guy necessarily had close family members who were like please don't do this mm-hmm. i think this journalist had kind of convinced himself that he was friends with this person and that somehow this was a good thing to air yeah so i think the ethical ickiness of the this type of media was i think much more present at the end of s town than it is in things like Serial. What it does do really well, aside from creating a nice, neat little narrative, is it gives you a lot of insight into Adnan Sayed and his family. So we learn about, you know, he was a high school student. He, you know, his family was very much involved in the community. He was involved in the community and in the mosque. He was in track. He was relatively popular and well-liked. He was, you know, helpful. He did chores for his parents. We learned that he dated Heyman Lee kind of secretly because like he wasn't supposed to be dating at all, but particularly not someone who was not Muslim and certainly not without parental oversight. And it's, I don't know, I don't remember if Heyman Lee really told her parents about him either. Like, I think there was a lot of very strict immigrant family parenting and it comes up in this show where they're not supposed to be dating at this age and certainly not outside of their ethnic community and uh, religious community in this sense. So what it does really well is it, it gets us to learn as much as we can about Adnan and his family to think about the racialized issues that are happening. Certainly 1999 was very close to 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. There were some brewing issues with Islamophobia or anti-Muslim yeah. sentiment 
that certainly came to a fore just a couple of years after this incident happened. So it brings all of those questions to the table, right? Like, would Adnan Sayyad have been treated this way if he hadn't been a Muslim American? I think a lot of those sort of weird rhetorics got really tied up in this case. So I think the show does a good job of bringing that to bear. It does a good job of considering how do sort of the justice systems and police do their jobs and what can that look like and where can it potentially go wrong? Uh, but basically, it just takes you through a huge stack of evidence and kind of gets you to think about, well, what does this evidence actually help to support or not? The thing that's really concerning about this, and I think this is really common across true crime, is the victim. We don't really hear much about the victim. Supposedly, they reached out to talk to the victim's family and her family weren't interested in talking about it. I don't know to what degree that's always true or helpful, though, because it seems like in a lot of these types of shows, particularly true crime shows that are focused on people who might have been wrongfully convicted, they're definitely on the side of the person who's been convicted rather than the victim's family. But I think in general, across a lot of true crime, even if it's definitely not on the side of someone who may have been wrongly wrongfully convicted, or if they are looking at people who definitely did commit a crime, and it's particularly prevalent in serial killer media, we don't really learn about the victims at all. We don't know anything about them except for like, what was their name? How old were they? Ideally, they will have been a woman. Otherwise, what's the point of making this media? It feels right, like if we right. can't if we can't learn about extreme violence against women, then what's the point? Well, and it seems like there's in the true crime media, the the victim is always, to some extent, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the like angel or whore dichotomy that we yeah. have seen women characterized with for a long time now. Uh, mm-hmm. But like there in this true crime media, she's almost always presented as an angel. And like as you were describing the situation, I could kind of imagine the victim here, Heyman Lee, being kind of depicted as like, oh, she's a sweet little Christian immigrant girl and i'm not saying that like we have to drag all of the dirty laundry out for the victim but it often seems like victims aren't allowed to be complicated people yeah or that we're not allowed to question maybe the depictions of them as victims following the crime yeah as something that might be conveniently made up especially if we're thinking about the islamophobia element with this case and the way that that was probably weighed against this like nice christian girl even if she wasn't white like right still yeah she became she became like by proxy white and i think actually this does happen Mm -hmm. particularly to uh, this is an identity or or type of identity that is forced on to particularly eastern asian people in the U.S. where it's like, oh, well, as long as you fit the mold of the really good Asian person. Right. The the model minority. The model minority myth. Then we're happy to accept you as quote unquote white as long as nothing complicates that. Yep. It's interesting here, too, because it also shows the like just complete misunderstanding in America of what Asia is and how huge it is because Heyman yeah. Lee is Korean American. I think she was born in the U.S. So she's Asian. And so is Adnan Sayed, who is from a Pakistani immigrant family. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I think you're you're right on Heyman 
not only fits into this model minority myth, but also I do think her family was Christian. And so that also then kind of puts you into the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant yeah. <laughs> good people view. So there, there is something at work there. Certainly there's also class issues as well, because I think, you know, Adnan's family was working class. I think Heyman's family is also working class, but that doesn't seem to come in necessarily. But the assumptions that he's going to be kind of a bad boy, even beyond being a Muslim American, is part of that class as well. When... And I think that's the other thing, sort of the ways in which we imagine criminal class in terms of, at least in the U.S., in terms of both socioeconomic status and race. If we look at non-white working class or below teenagers, we assume that they're like automatically going to be criminals in some certain way, or at least that's the way we depict them. And if they do any kind of normal teenager stuff, like smoking marijuana, or maybe they shoplifted Uh or whatever... All of having that is a secret, seen, having a secret, having a secret slash girlfriend. Exactly. All of those things come to be like basically confirmation bias that, well, obviously they must have done that. We've seen this over and over again, despite the fact that like teenagers smoke weed and drink alcohol and steal stuff and drive around recklessly in their cars and have secret yeah. partners. Okay. I, I actually, because I was worried about mischaracterizing the victim here as Christian. And I will go ahead and admit that that was a stereotype I jumped to because a lot of Korean immigrant families are Christian. So it's funny, I went to the the like Wikipedia page for Heyman Lee and she doesn't even get her own Wikipedia page. It's called The Killing of Heyman Lee. Yeah. And most of the information here is about Syed. Yep. Which just feels like it really speaks to your point. (laughs) Yeah. Now, on the one hand, I I do want to say that I do think her family wanted privacy and they absolutely deserve privacy. They absolutely deserve to maintain Heyman's memory in the way that they need to. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think when you look at the larger trends of true crime media, we don't learn anything in depth about the victims and particularly when you're looking at true crime media about people who are wrongfully convicted or potentially may have been wrongfully convicted. We learn even less. It's like the victim kind of serves as like a, a catalyst or a vehicle for us looking at the justice system in this in this case in particular, yep. which I find really concerning. And I, I think that is probably one of the best ethical concerns and arguments against consuming true crime media is that it does have that flattening effect on on the victims of the crimes. So the final thing that went really, really huge was All Be Gone in the Dark. It's a, it was a book by Michelle McNamara. Michelle McNamara was working on it for a long time. Before she started working on the book, she had a long-standing true crime blog called true crime diary i believe you can't access anymore i was trying to read some of her old stuff and it's you can't find the blog anymore she also used to host a podcast called crime scene um which you also i couldn't find so maybe none of that is in the public um venue anymore so she she'd been a crime writer for a long time but this was kind of like her magnum opus Mm -hmm. she wrote an extended piece for i think it was an LA magazine. I can't remember. Maybe it, just, maybe it was just LA magazine that got really popular and led to her being able to land a book deal. 
so she, but she had gotten interested in, I think she was watching some kind of show and she learned about the so-called East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. She got really obsessed with this case because it happened in California and it ranged all over California, which is where she lived at the time. And it wasn't one she'd heard about. She eventually came across kind of the original book about it and got even more interested. And basically she, she became convinced that this was a solvable crime and she kind of set out to learn as much as she could about it and solve the crime. The book itself is just beautifully, fantastically written. I do highly recommend it, to be honest. I think one thing that's really unique about this book in terms of true crime media is that Michelle McNamara puts herself into it and she fully admits and I think just works with the ways in which she is a part of the way she's writing the book and therefore a part of the way she's representing the crimes that she's writing Mm. about and what it Mm -hmm. means to her. She really invites you to think about like, why are you reading this book and and what interests do you have and, and what do you do with that then? Which is, I think, a really unique take. I it's it, like I said, it's beautifully written. It's incredibly immersive. It scared the crap out of me when I was <laughs> reading it. I was reading it in the UK at the time. We lived on the third floor And there's no air conditioning. So it was summer and we had our windows open at night so that it didn't get horrifically hot in our apartment. And I was sitting there like reading this book, sitting, you know, next to my, my partner who was asleep at the time. And then looking at our third story window and being like, somebody could maybe climb up into our third story window and attack us and being really afraid, even though I was like, it seems extremely unlikely someone's going to climb into our third story apartment. There's someone who lives on the first floor. I think they're probably a lot easier if this is going to happen at all. So I found it terrifying in a way that I don't tend to find true crime, which was also a different experience for me. For those people who aren't aware of what the book covers, it's about what actually Michelle McNamara came to call the Golden State Killer So it follows the crimes of someone who was originally known, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker in the 1970s and 1980s. He sort of started with a series of of break-ins. He was basically like stalking people, looking into their homes. He found out how to break into them. He watched their kind of their daily routines. He would steal stuff like meaningful things and like underwear. So for a long time, he was doing that. He then, I guess, as the crime world would call it, graduated into raping people. It began with just individual women, crimes of opportunity, and eventually grew to him targeting couples. So what he would do is is he would case their house, learn how to break in, spend time there. He might make hang up phone calls or phone calls where it was just breathing heavily. Ah, um, yes. The yeah. classic in the, classic, the, the yeah. serial rapist slash this, killer's arsenal. There's this really chilling scene in the show where you hear an actual recorded phone call from him where he's threatening someone. It's it's awful. And so what he would do is he would then, after figuring all that out, he would kind of watch them until they went to sleep. He would let them sleep for a little bit. Then he would break in. Oh, how nice of him. I know. The key thing is he would wake them up suddenly with the bright flashlight in their eyes. He was always wearing a mask. He would force the husband, he would basically take the husband and tie him up. I think he usually had a gun, like I'm going to shoot you unless you do this kind of thing. He would tie the husband up, put like plates or dishes on him so that he would know if he moved and put him in a different room 
and then rape his wife multiple times. He would, in between rapes, eat food and drink beer in the kitchen and mess up their house or whatever, and then he would leave. Eventually, he did end up coming to kill the couples that he assaulted. So it's a really horrific and terrifying series of crimes. The amount, the, the more than a decade that these crimes were going on and the fact that like eventually we learned that the guy had been for a short period of time a police officer. He had been in the military. Oh, no. Like oh. he, the fact that like the police were just like, we, uh, we don't know. It's impossible for us to solve this crime. Certainly, you know, because he had been a police officer, he knew that different Mm -hmm. precincts don't talk to each other. So he's committing the crimes in a lot of different places. He's, you know, you've got this series of crimes that uh, do, they did end up being able to link them together through DNA and those kinds of things. But yeah, there's some different MOs in some of these. So people didn't always link at least the the earlier rapes and house break-ins to things that he was doing later. So he just is like this really long crime spree that then suddenly ended. (laughs) I think the theory is that like he was getting older and slower and he had kids he had to take care of. And like, I guess you can't (laughs) continue. All the fun. They do, right? They ruin ruin your crime career. That's for sure. Rude. So yeah, this, this particular person really caught Michelle McNamara's imagination. She did a lot of kind of internet amateur sleuthing with other amateur sleuths. That was kind of a big part of her life. She died before she completed her book. She died in April of 2016 from basically like an accidental combination of meds. Like the meds that she was combining led to a heart attack, basically. Um, The way they kind of put it in the book and in the show is that there, there was a lot of pressure on her to complete this book. On top of that, I think the case was really, really weighing heavily on her. She'd been so immersed in it. It was really making, basically making it very difficult for her to sleep. So she began, she got some sleeping pills. And then in order to feel awake enough to work on it, she had basically uppers to help her get through that. Yeah. You know, her doctors were continuing to prescribe her these things without really letting her know that you you can't just kind of play fast and loose with them. And that seems to have been what happened in this case, which is really sad. So her husband, who happens to be the famous comedian Patton Oswalt, did complete the book for her along with a fellow writer, uh, Jillian Flynn. They completed the book and then eventually they... um, they did make a several part series uh, for HBO Max, which has intensive interviews with victims, family members, Patton Oswalt. Um, and it's got a lot of footage of Michelle McNamara and in different interviews with her and different uh, recordings that she's done just to kind of hear her voice and how she approached this particular case. So is um. Is Jillian Flynn Gone Girl? Yes. Yeah. I, okay. I I only know that because I looked it up last night. I was like, who's Jillian Flynn? What I think is different about the HBO show compared to some of the concerns I had with Serial and with Making a Murderer. And again, this is probably because this is not something that's focused on someone who is wrongly, wrongfully convicted. It was focused on trying to solve a decades old series of crimes and figure out who this person was and hold them accountable but particularly in the show itself you hear directly from past victims they talk in depth Mm -hmm. about the crime but they also talk in depth about their lives and what happened afterwards and and Mm -hmm. how they have learned how to cope 
and move on with their lives and what they find valuable. And you get to see them kind of create a community with each other, which is really interesting. And they do spend some time focusing on the husbands as well and their experiences of it. And and some yeah. uh, some of the husbands weren't didn't feel able to stay in the marriage, right? Because they just felt so broken by having not done their protective duty as they would have yeah, seen it's, it. It's a huge trauma. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. So it's 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 an incredibly affective and effective show. It's very emotionally challenging and interesting. I think it's it's one of the better done, I think, true crime series. And it has also, I guess, not a happy ending because there's no happy ending to crimes like that, 13 murders and like 60 rapes. There's no happy ending to that. But they did catch him. They caught him. He's in jail now. He's very old. So they caught him very late, but they did catch him. Actually, I feel like I didn't take any time to ask you what you knew about All Begun in the Dark before I just went on and talked about them forever. No, it's cool. I, with Michelle McNamara, I remember a few years ago when they they announced that they had caught the guy and kind of seeing those headlines. But I actually think uh, this is kind of funny because I knew that Patton Oswald's wife had died, but I didn't didn't know who she was or what she was doing or anything like that. Right. So I just kind of saw the like sad Patton Oswald things on Twitter for a little while because this was back when yeah. I was still on Twitter, but didn't I didn't actually really know much about this one at all. I think what I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about some tropes. And in order to do that, I'd like for us to listen to the opening of Serial. And then have you kind of respond to it. And then the the opening of the first episode of I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO. Cool. And then we can kind of look at like, what are some similarities that we're seeing across these? I think it's a way to help us maybe think through like, why did these become such huge cultural touchstones? Because yeah. while true crime is still a, a big, huge business there is a wide range of options when it comes to true crime and some of it seems very niche and has a steady but relatively small audience compared Mm -hmm. to these three things which had a massive mainstream audience so I think that's kind of an interesting question to ask so all right so we're gonna just listen to a couple of minutes of this and then um afterwards we'll we'll respond I think okay Particularly you, since I've listened to this again last night. This is a global tail link prepaid call from Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial. One story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. For the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. Or if you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, where a high school kid was for 21 minutes after school one day in 1999. This search sometimes feels undignified on my part. I've had to ask about teenagers' sex lives, where, how often, with whom, about notes they passed in class, about their drug habits, their relationships with their parents, And I am not a detective or a private investigator, not even a crime reporter. But yes, every day this year, I've tried to figure out the alibi of a 17-year-old boy. 
Before I get into why I've been doing this, I just want to point out something I'd never really thought about before I started working on this story. And that is, it's really hard to account for your time in a detailed way, I mean. How'd you get to work last Wednesday, for instance? Drive? Walk? Bike? Was it raining? Are you sure? Did you go in any stores that day? If so, what did you buy? Who did you talk to? The entire day, name every person you talked to. It's hard. Now imagine you have to account for a day that happened six weeks back, because that's a situation in the story I'm working on, in which a bunch of teenagers had to recall a day six weeks earlier. And it was 1999, so they had to do it without the benefit of texts or Facebook or Instagram. Just for a lark, I asked some teenagers to try it. Do you remember what you did on that Friday? No. <laughs> not, not at all. I can't remember anything. Wait, nothing? No. I can't remember anything that far back. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I was in school. I think. No? That's Tyler. He's 18. I asked my nephew, Sam. He's 18, too. Not a clue. Uh, in school, probably. I would be in school. Um, actually, I think I worked that day. No, yeah, I worked that day, and I went to school. That was about it. Actually, on second thought? I don't think I went to school that day. You don't that think you went? Yeah, no, I didn't. I definitely didn't. Here's Sam's friend, Elliot. He seemed to have better recall. Actually, I may have gone to the movies that night later. Do you remember what now you saw? I'm thinking... I'm sorry, yeah, I think I saw 22 Jump Street. Okay. And what, did you go with friends? Yeah. I went with Sam and Kid Sean, Carter, a bunch of people. Wait, you, Sam, my, my nephew Sam? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So Sam says he was at work. Oh, then it wasn't that night then. One kid did actually remember pretty well, because it was the last day of state testing at his school, and he'd saved up to go to a nightclub. That's the main thing I learned from this exercise, which is no big shocker, I guess, is that if some significant event happened that day, you remember that, plus you remember the entire day much better. If nothing significant happened, then the answers get very general. I most likely did this, or I most likely did that. These are words I've heard a lot lately. Here's the case I've been working on. Almost 15 years ago, on January 13, 1999, a girl named Heyman Lee disappeared. She was a senior at Woodlawn High School in Baltimore County in Maryland. She was Korean. She was smart and beautiful and cheerful and a great athlete. She played field hockey and lacrosse. And she was responsible. Right after school, she was supposed to pick up her little cousin from kindergarten and drop her home. But she didn't show. That's when Haley's family knew something was up, when the cousin's school called. About a month later, on February 9th, Hay's body was found in a big park in Baltimore, really a rambling forest. A maintenance guy who said he'd stopped to take a leak on his way to work discovered her there. He'd noticed a bit of her black hair poking out of a shallow grave. The cause of death was manual strangulation, meaning someone did it with their hands. A couple weeks after that, so six weeks after she first went missing, Hay's ex-boyfriend, a guy named Adnan Sayed, was arrested for her murder. He's been in prison ever since. Okay, so what is your response to that? I think that's enough to give us a sense of the style and approach. And I wanted to wait until she actually introduced the case, which takes her quite a while to do. But yeah, what yeah. what's your feeling on that? There's a couple of things that's kind of happening here for me. First of all, podcasts now, there's a real difference, I think, between this the NPR style podcast, which is, mm-hmm. is still very clearly radio influence. So it's very 
polished, very practiced, as opposed to, you know, you and me here uh, jammered about stuff. The other the thing that's really striking me here is the way that she collected these other voices Mm -hmm. to, to use. And especially the fact that it's all young male voices describing how they don't know what they did that day. Right. Which I have a feeling is going to be very striking later when we hear Adnan Syed's voice describing how he doesn't know what he did that day. Yeah. Um, or something along those lines. So the the fact that it feels like we're already immediately set up to not feel like Syed is especially ominous or yeah something like that yeah that that's a good point and I until you said this it didn't occur to me that she chooses to talk to teenage boys there are no teenage girls there's Mm -hmm. as far as we know no queer people uh Mm -hmm. in any of those and that I I think you're right I think that is to set up a comparison of like well if these regular everyday teenage boys that I spoke to and one of them happens to be I don't know a cousin or a nephew or something then you know we have to we have to apply that same logic to Adnan and and his friends trying to account for their time back in 1999 mm-hmm. it's a very certainly she's setting that up what so what it does I think for the audience and again pointing out about how polished it is, I think is really smart because it makes it seem like she did this early on. Not that as she was putting this together in the past Mm -hmm. few weeks, she then went out and decided to do this as as an Mm -hmm. exercise that would be narratively striking, which I, I think is kind of the, it's effective certainly, but I also think it's like there's you and I, as people who have taught writing and have thought a lot about narrative structure and have thought a lot about how to create things this way and what will be most effective for the audience that you're both developing and responding to as you compose something can sit back and be like, clearly as she was putting this together, she had a moment where she thought, you know, what would really help is if I brought in voices of other teenage boys let me create that and then just kind of work it in seamlessly. But I think as a listener who's not thinking about how these things are made, it's going to seem a lot more natural as if this is the thing you should just have done and that it was just a part of her investigation process, which it absolutely wasn't. It was a part of the composing process, potentially relatively late in the game. And so, yeah, I think that's a really great point. I do think it is poignant and I, I don't disagree with her point that we don't remember things very yeah, well. Totally. And, you know, when police insist on consistency, when you tell a story and it seems suspicious, if you're not consistent, it's like, well, how can you be if something, if it, again, as she points out, if it was just a regular day, how would you remember that? Right. She does talk about, Hey man, that's probably the most time she spends on her is is that introduction as you as we talked about earlier she's definitely posed as like she lit up the room that she walked into kind of uh-huh. thing which is definitely a trope and again i don't want to say anything bad about Heyman lee i just want to say that it does fit within the typical representation yeah so it's i i think the more we look at these the more we see their uh, the massive amount of work creating a narrative behind the scenes that I think is easy to 
miss or avoid sort of on a first watch, or especially if you're not thinking about that process. Yep. Let's take a look at the opening of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. We'll do some responses, but I think the key thing is like, what are some similarities we're seeing? I think it's helpful in this case too, because these are two very different cases. As I mentioned earlier, one is focused on a potentially wrongfully convicted person and the other is focused on solving the mystery of a bunch of serial murders and and rapes. Yeah. My name is Michelle McNamara. I'm a crime writer in Los Angeles. I am doing a series on unsolved crimes. Hi, Kate. This is Michelle McNamara. Hey, it's Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hi. I mean, I, I, I write a lot about unsolved cases. One that I um, am very fascinated with is the East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker case. I think it's very solvable. There's a good likelihood that he is still alive and he's out there. I think the narcotic pull for me is what I think of as the powerful absence that haunts an unsolved crime. Murderers lose their power the moment we know them. We see their unkempt shirts, the uncertain fear tightening their faces as they're led into a courtroom. When I'm puzzling over the details of an unsolved crime, I'm like a rat in a maze given a task. And I mean that in the best possible way. The world narrows, the search propels. I felt in the truest sense of the word, gripped. I had a murder habit, and it was bad. I would feed it for the rest of my life. stood out to me is the real contrast between the musical choices serial had a a little bit of a bouncier feel to it to begin with as we're talking to these like teenage boys that don't know where they were yeah Um, whereas we're starting with something really tense already here like the the subtitles described it as like tense music playing (laughs) Uh, i could see the subtitles still Um, interesting (laughs) but the other thing that was kind of interesting is one of the things that is notable here is that both of these openings are really placing us with our point of view narrator or character here right Mm -hmm. so with serial the narrator is talking about like mulling over this question of like how do you like how do you know where you were or like Mm -hmm. her and we have these other voices in there besides hers but it's focused on like her having this question same Mm -hmm. thing here with 
I'll be gone in the dark. It's very focused on I, like I am drawn to these cases. The use of the word narcotic maybe seemed like a poor choice considering how she died, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it was intentional. Who knows? But also the, the taking us back to what we were talking about earlier, the image of the like super smart serial killer who's like constantly outsmarting the police the opening here really undercuts that image immediately. This idea that like, as soon as they're known and we see them, we see like the unkempt shirt really got me. Yeah. Um, And like the idea that they're not all put together and that being the like primary driver for this narrator's search was really, I found it more engaging, I guess, than I did the serial opening. Yeah, I so it's interesting. I I think that really drew me as well. This idea that if we once we learn who this person is and see their face, they they lose some of their power. So mm-hmm. the images that you can see, they had some images of some different serial killers entering courtrooms. We have an image of our good old friend Jeff, who we talked about earlier. Jeffy boy, Jeffy boy. We see Richard Ramirez who was called the Night Stalker, which is, I guess, then why we had to have the original Night Stalker. I will call him Dick. Yep. Yeah. Dick Stalker. We, we won't talk about him in any more depth. I think we see, so I don't actually even remember the name of this one. Let me look it up real quick. We see the Green River Killer, who I think basically it took them so long to catch him because he was killing prostitutes and nobody gives a shit about prostitutes. Oh, right. Gare Gare, Gary Ridgeway. We'll call him Gare Gare. Um, so Gergar and again all of these are are images of these people entering into courtrooms where they're either yeah they they look unkempt they're often wearing their jumpsuit their prison jumpsuit or rumpled clothing or whatever they they just look like ordinary people pretty much and that I think I agree. I think that does take out some of the power. I think the thing that it doesn't necessarily do for everyone, but maybe should. And again, here I'm kind of channeling Sarah Marshall is what it should reveal to you is just that certainly serial killers are mentally ill. I don't think there's a way to to kill people in that manner and not be mentally ill. I think that, that that's definitely yeah. a case, but they're, they're also people, they're human beings and they're, they're acting out things in some really aggressive ways that are not necessarily uncommon to human behavior. And I think that's something that people don't see as much. I like your point that with both serial and I'll be gone in the dark, the style is very much eye focused on the person writing or composing the thing. So HBO does, the HBO show does have a lot from Michelle McNamara, I think in part because It's not just talking about the case, but honoring her memory and the work that she did, which I think is important. But we do hear from Adnan Sayed and and Serial as well. We hear his perspective because he's still alive. We don't hear anything from the Golden State Killer, in part because I think both of these things came out before he was caught. And also just because who wants to hear from him? Although I guess given all of the shows on Netflix that are also like the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, the 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 Teddy yeah. tapes, you're just like, I don't why why do we want to hear from Teddy? Like he's just a weird, gross dude. We don't need to hear from Teddy. Anyway, yeah, there there's an interesting thing there of the creator being central to this. I think 
what that does, or at least I would argue what that does is it puts you into the seat as a, as an investigator. And I think particularly Mm -hmm. with Michelle McNamara, that's what she did. She was an amateur sleuth. Basically she, she ran in all of those circles and was interested in solving the cases it seems that Sarah Koenig got really interested in that. And there's a, a huge element of that in making a murderer as well. So I think there's a, there's a couple things going on here, right? With the, with the wrongful conviction shows, you have the sense of the dual sense of you can be an investigator too, which I think is kind of inviting for people. I don't know mm-hmm. if I can really say why. Maybe we can think about that. Yeah. Why? Why? why would we want to feel like we're also investigating the case and solving it? I mean, there's tons of like police crime procedurals that do the same thing. Like why, why is that so interesting to us? Do you think? Yeah. So the, the question I've been thinking to myself as, as we've been talking about these, when I was talking about all those points, when I was like offered this media and chose not to engage Mm -hmm. looking back now seems kind of strange because I do actually consume a lot of like crime fiction yeah I really like I mentioned I love Sherlock Holmes stories I've like I listen to them to fall asleep at night and like a lot of detective novels I you know I think like a lot of the world I find law and order soothing in its predictability oh yeah Um, (laughs) absolutely but like even shows like The Wire I I really enjoy that kind of stuff but I never got into true crime and I I've been thinking about wondering if like part of it is that I appreciate the way that when it's framed as narrative even if it's like based on a true story or something like that when it's framed as narrative we can critique it in certain kinds of ways that we don't feel like we can when it's like documentary right like when it's narrative we can question things like point of view or bias whereas when it's presented as documentary Mm. it's somehow harder I think for viewers to separate what they're like to understand what they're seeing as something that has been carefully composed like we were talking about with serial earlier you and I can understand the composing process that went into that because that's part of what we've been trained to do Mm. but it there's always been something I think a little man I don't want to like yuck somebody's yum there's <laughs> I think there's always been something to me that's a little icky about some true crime stuff because of the way it glamorizes stuff while still presenting it as like truth quote unquote yeah there's a there's an element of authority to it Yes. Just as yeah. part of the the framing of documentary, like we are sharing something that happened. And I think it's a lot easier for people, perhaps because we spend so much of our lives being prepared to be effective little cogs in a capitalist machine mm-hmm. <laughs> where like listening to authority and, and a lot of our schooling is based on memorizing facts, right? Even mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, this was really shown to be quite the case during COVID and still when it comes to the COVID vaccine, 
people really not understanding the scientific method. And the reason yeah. they don't understand it is because they were never actually taught it. They were taught to memorize these things as facts and reproduce them on tests. Yeah. And that's how they were taught history. And that's, and because of that model, we, I think, lose some of our sense of, of, this is a debate. This is a discussion. This is something we're developing. Yeah. There's something that there's things that we have more evidence for than other things. And I think in addition, when you look at the way our, our court system works or our, so not like our legislative, but our judicial system, it's an agonistic system. And I guess mm-hmm. the way Sarah Marshall talks about is antagonistic system. It's yeah. looking back. A lot of the work that lawyers are doing are to develop narratives from facts that are biased but because they're an authority and because they're very aware of how effective emotional appeals are they work on those a lot yeah not that considering someone's life circumstances is bad but it does lead to a system that's less concerned with what actually are the facts and mitigating factors and much more concerned with winning or losing and All of taking all of that together, yeah, I think it it lulls people into, a, I guess, a sense of like I'm hearing something true. So again, as I said, like that opening with Sarah Koenig talking to those teenagers, it feels like that was a part of her investigative process. When I know mm-hmm. something that she probably came up with is like I'm missing something here. I need something. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and th- thinking then about you know, why is this so, why is it so appealing to feel like you're an investigator alongside the investigator? It's, it's maybe that same feeling of triumph when you predict the end of the murder mystery novel, like when you, mm-hmm. when you figure out the, the catch before the end of the book. But if it's real life, then that means you're that much better. <laughs> and the the episodes of my favorite murder that I have listened to, I have found them enjoyable for a variety of reasons. I think mm-hmm. the women that do that show, whose names escape me at the moment, are very funny. I've heard them on other podcasts. I find them very entertaining people. But the the tagline of like "Stay sexy, don't get murdered" sometimes feels weirdly like you're better than the victims we talk about because you're smart enough to not get murdered or something, which is maybe a horrible rep- like misrepresentation of that. But I think there's the similar appeal of like, if you are investigating these cold case murders and you manage to like help solve them, yeah, you're that much better than other people maybe. Yeah. So um, the the women who run My Favorite Murder are Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hard Stark. I just yes. looked this up. I know. I think you're absolutely right. So I don't, I wouldn't argue that the creators of that podcast are victim blaming no, not at like, all. Like that's not their goal. No, nope. but that is how a lot of true crime is represented. Like as I was saying earlier, it's this way to pretend that you can avoid crime somehow. Yeah. But then what the difficult side effect of that is that you do get a lot of people being like, well, if only she had done this or she had done that. Mm-hmm. And I say she very, very meaningfully yep. here because most of this is about women getting murdered or or raped or assaulted but I, I agree with you I think that there's the sense of like I get to solve the crime and with true crime that feels really good because it's almost like I'm helping somehow yep. 
do we think it's 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 good for us to consume true crime? Yeah, and I think that in thinking about why I made those choices to not engage with true crime texts, I'm already a very highly anxious person, somewhat paranoid. A few weeks ago, my partner went out of town for a thing, and I was staying here at the house by myself. And before I went to bed that night, I took one of the hockey sticks out of the closet and put it next to my bed because I was thinking like, well, if somebody breaks into the house, I'll at least try to jab them with a hockey stick. I don't know what I was thinking. But I think (laughs) that as somebody who already has a very active imagination for better or worse, Mm -hmm. making a deliberate choice to not engage in true crime is something that is better for my overall mental well-being because I could see how it would make me more paranoid. And I think especially in a world where it really does feel like attacks can come out of anywhere because they do kind of often seem to come out of anywhere. Mm -hmm. The more you go looking for reasons to be suspicious of other people, the more you're going to find them. Right. So I don't, I don't know that true crime is necessarily good for us because it, well, the the other problem that I kind of have with true crime that Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about as we've been talking is that it often treats crime as primarily a psychological problem or an individual problem Mm -hmm. rather than a sociological problem. Right. So doing the like deep dive into like making a murderer where it's like, well, if he hadn't gone to prison, would this have happened rather than asking where did our system fail him long before he got to this point? Right. Or even with the victims too, like, Mm -hmm. you know, they made individual choices to like go do this thing or that thing and then ended up dead. And we're supposed to then make better individual choices. Right. So it feels like it really places the problem of crime on the individual rather than treating it as a like social issue and when I again think about like the kind of crime media that I really like to consume or that I think is really interesting it does tend to be more sociological so like The Wire for instance or the Martin Beck novels by Swedish authors uh, Cheval and Valu which Mm -hmm. tends to take a more they have a like titular detective, but he's he's really not the main character. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I would be concerned about the way that true crime encourages us to think about crime in general. Right. Yeah, there's a very much personal responsibility trap with a lot of these things. So as we've already talked about this sense that like you're watching this to help you prepare to not be a victim. Because you are always a possible victim. Like any moment of your life, you can become a victim is sort of the framing. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other hand, we see the like, oh, well, it's only someone who was mentally ill or evil. We get get that a lot, particularly from police officers and DA Mm -hmm. and occasionally victims and their families talking about like, this was pure evil that I saw, which is a really limiting way of talking about why crime happens. Yep. It's also very true that a lot of the the true crime that we see is is a very, very limited amount of crime that happens. So yeah, 
Bearquist shares a couple of just like key statistics. So she talks about that basically crime has actually been a crime across the board, but particularly major crime has been decreasing for 18 years. She also points out that you're more likely to die from a heart disease or a car crash than you are from being murdered. And in the U.S., men are actually much more likely to become victims of homicide than women. But if we looked at our true crime media, we would not believe any of that, right? Yeah. The other key thing is, well, you know, Berquist admits, yes, she was one of the relatively few victims of stranger crime. Most people who are violently assaulted or murdered, this is happening to them from people that they know. That is far yeah. more likely than stranger danger. So yeah, you get this, this sense of like, if only, you know, just the right combinations of things, you won't become a victim. The people who do these things, there's nothing that can be done. It's either they're, they're irrevocably evil or they're just kind of like a bad apple. All of it is just absolutely, as you pointed out, not at all engaging with any of the sociological issues underlying what might cause crime, certain types of crime, the fact that there isn't a criminal class. That's actually a very weird, like both puritanical and also eugenicist view. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of our uh, true crime media perpetuates those issues. Mm hmm. Even serial, I think, helps to perpetuate some of those issues in ways that I don't think Sarah Koenig meant to, but I also don't know if it's possible to make a true crime show in this country without it being reworked through all of those rhetorics and ideologies that we have that are existing. And in that way, in that way, I'd have to say, yeah, true crime is kind of bad for us because it, it, it has that confirmation bias of what we already expect of quote-unquote criminals and quote-unquote crime it doesn't ask us to question any of those things yeah and it asks us to victim blame as well which is really concerning yep we're going to return to our big question now yeah which is you know we've asked a lot about what does it mean to be a fan when it comes to true crime what does fandom look like for true crime so when we when we've looked at this question before, I feel like in in other contexts we've talked both about like consumption, but also like fan production. Yeah, and it really this is this is this is one of those situations that seems to be really heavy on consumption. Yeah, I there are people who do the like unsolved cases thing. Yeah, do you think um, there's a growing range of of like blogs and podcasts on this but yeah it's still a relatively low number of people yeah so it seems to primarily be about consumption Mm -hmm. and maybe that's another reason why I find it as troubling as I do or it's just seems so not my wheelhouse because as people who have listened may have gotten the impression of I'm very much one of those people who like produces as a fan whether mm-hmm. that's like head cannons or writing fix or even sometimes doing art I have started doing some art but I like yeah. when I'm a fan of something I'm producing stuff as well as consuming and this this feels weird to me because it's only consumption 
So meanwhile, I am the fan who I'm a lurker fan. I've tended to be, there's very few fandoms in which I have produced. So I've produced in Harry Potter fandom. I wrote a story after reading a, a basically all of the Anne of Green Gables books. That was a hot story. <laughs> I've written a, I heard a fanfic that put together works by Octavia Butler and Cameron Hurley because I felt like it. But mostly I tend to just follow stuff. So I'll read fan stuff. I might I might respond and say, I really like this or retweet. And now that I'm into the Our Flag Means Death fandom, but most of my fandom has been kind of like excessive consumption and revisiting that consumption and mulling on it letting it make me feel feelings again I think headspace is a big thing where mm-hmm. it's like how much time does it take up how much do I return to it will I re-watch it will I reread will I sit and ruminate on it and I think with true mm-hmm. crime there are things that I do ruminate on and I and I do definitely get into a pattern of like right now I need to listen to or watch something crime related or murder related part of it's just like comforting and I know that seems fucking weird but Sarah Marshall said this too like the way in which a lot of this media works whether it's true crime or just crime but fictional is mm-hmm. it's very it's putting kind of a predictable controlled narrative mm-hmm. on the inherent chaos of the world yep. and if my life is feeling really out of control it's almost like I channel some of my anxiety through being able to think through this media and and watch it and see here's how someone was able to endure despite this experience that they had and I think there is something that's somewhat weirdly comforting to me. So for me, I, I don't tend to be as much of a productive fan. I have a hard time connecting with that space. Sometimes it feels like work. So when I do manage to produce things, it's like kind of a big deal. But I see what you mean. Like you sort of, it's definitely not a fandom that's much on giving back unless you become an amateur internet sleuth and are going in and sharing theories and mm-hmm stuff, which there are a number of people who do, you know, if you enjoy true crime or crime shows, you shouldn't give that up, but maybe you should lessen the amount of time you spend on them. That's my takeaway. Go engage in some good old fashioned fictional crime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or like something else, something that's not crime related. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I've I'm worried I've come across as like being snooty about this. So I'll go ahead and confess that uh, one of my guilty pleasures is hoarders, which I think is just as exploitative and like built on people's pain. But it's a very, I think it's a very similar thing of like mm-hmm. when my life feels especially out of control, it's comforting. Yeah. So. That's funny. Those those are the shows I can't handle. I can't handle hoarders. I can't handle intervention. Yeah. For me, I'm like, oh, no (laughs) yeah whereas I think there's something with true crime where at least there's the veneer of the people the victims we are talking to agreed to do this or they're dead you know (laughs) yeah it's not (laughs) it's not any better but I I I agree with you there's definitely that sense of like yeah feeling some way of seeing control in an ultimately chaotic world in which we live and scary world for sure and it's a lot of my true crime is really amped up since the, the COVID lockdown. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Like when our world seems completely out of control and terrifying, sometimes it's helpful to have 
here's some other person's terror that's neatly yeah. packaged up and yep. there you go yeah neatly sure. packaged terror neatly packaged uh, terror yeah I feel like our new tagline is something like random fandom we feel bad about ourselves <laughs> <laughs> We, we, we apologize cons- for ourselves. We can we're concerned with the things that we yes, that we we're consume. concerned with the things we like. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of being a, a fan as well. Yeah. It's just being like, what why am I doing this? Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks everybody for listening. Our our big takeaway and our, our message to you is watch less true crime this yeah. week. Treat yourself to something else like time out in the sun if there happens to be some or a, a good game of parcheesi parcheesi yeah. i've never played parcheesi <laughs> all right well thanks for listening everybody we will catch you next time bye y'all